The Gist is sponsored by Automatic, the connected car adapter that pairs your car to your smartphone. Diagnose engine problems, drive more efficiently, remember where you parked, call for help after an accident, and more. Save 20% with free shipping and a 45-day return policy when you go to automatic.com slash gist. It's Tuesday, March 24th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Chinua Achebe has died. The Nigerian novelist, known for Things Fall Apart, it's been pretty quiet the last few years. In October 2012, he published There Was a Country, A Personal History of Biafra. But since then, really nothing. Now, of course, when great writers hit their 80s, as Achebe has, their output can suffer. They won't be as prolific as they were in their youth. But you know what else has been a real hindrance to this great writer's productivity after the last two, two and a half years when he hasn't been published? The fact that he's been dead for two of them. Twitter failed to note this fact. I got messages yesterday in my feed mourning the death of Chinua Achebe. I can't say that I said, wait, that guy died two years ago. But I also didn't say, the world must know. We all must grieve. Unlike the United States ambassador to the United Nations, who tweeted, Susan Rice tweeted, despite the promise of the future, today is a somber day in Nigeria as Chinua Achebe was laid to rest in his native village. Today he was laid to rest? Wait, this man Booker International Prize winner was a zombie the last two years? Although I got to say that Cynthia Ozick has been getting kind of stale these last few years. Anyway, my favorite tweet wasn't by anyone famous, just by someone who thought to tweet a world now without Chinua Achebe. It is hard to imagine what the world would be like without Chinua Achebe. But it's really hard to imagine what a world without Chinua Achebe would be like. Let me try to make a few guesses going to say the Republicans would take back Congress. I'm going to say that Joey Logano would win the Daytona 500. That would happen without Achube. Also, a kid named Alex, who worked for Target, would be discovered as cute. Those are my predictions for the post-Achube era. Also, that a UN ambassador would lightly embarrass herself. And a guy who hosts a podcast would be a little dismissive of your genuine heartfelt grief. Maybe Ambassador Rice was in denial for two years. I mean, Joey Logano. I'd try to block that out of my memory, too. On the show today, I spiel about a brave, a truly brave decision by maybe the world's best-known actress. But first, a great senator of yore who was mentioned on this show in a gargling context on February 18th. We bring you up to date on his life, even as his methods be slicken my innards. A few weeks ago on this program, I gargled with a mixture of Pond's cold cream and water. I'm not going to do it again, but I'll play the tape of that. Pond's plus water. (sighs) So what I was trying to do was pay tribute or at least to investigate the methods of Everett Dirksen, one of the greatest orators in the U.S. Senate history. In fact, a very important senator in passing the Civil Rights Act. And it was in the field of civil rights that Dirksen first actually was brought to my attention because I was listening to a Fresh Air interview with Todd Purdom. And Todd Purdom is the author of An Idea Whose Time Has Come, Two Presidents, Two Parties in the Battle for the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Purdom mentioned the Pond's cold cream thing. I decided to give it a go. And Todd Purdom is with me now. Hello. Hello, Mike. 
You ever try it? I mean, you're a good investigative journalist. You ever no, try the gargoyle? No, in gargoyle? fact, you know, I, you're a better or braver man than I am. I, I guess I might have thought about it at one point, but it seemed a little uh, a bridge too far. Right, and also um, your medium is the written word, so if he used it to, like, pen his speeches, maybe you would have tried it. I'm a speaker. I need every trick I could get. You know, he had heard as a young man the great William Jennings Bryan himself speak, and he asked him what his secret was, and he said, speak as if you're talking to the person in the last row, and you'll make yourself understood to, uh, to every listener. And he, he used to practice speaking as a, as a young man uh, on his family's cows. So he, he had a long history of becoming what, what he later became known as the Wizard of Ooze. Yeah, and uh, I, I heard he also achieved a very key cloture vote with Bessie and Molly one day. <laughs> So let's talk about civil rights. How much of a linchpin was he in getting the Civil Rights Act passed? Was he an opponent of Lyndon Baines Johnson? Was he really a partner? Assess his role. He was really uh, a partner with Johnson in passing both the 64 Civil Rights Act and the 65 Voting Rights Act and later the 1968 Fair Housing Act. He had come from Pekin, Illinois, uh, in the heart of Lincoln country, and he had always been a sort of general proponent of civil rights. Going back to the 30s, he'd been in favor of anti-lynching laws, things like that. But when the Civil Rights Bill was first proposed by John Kennedy, Dirksen was skeptical about the two central provisions. One, Title II, which would desegregate public accommodations, hotels, lunch counters, and so on. And two, the employment discrimination provision, which would allow the federal government to get involved in um, suing to end uh, discrimination in the workplace. And part of the reason Dirksen was concerned was that his own home state of Illinois already had strong laws on the books on both those matters. And he didn't want, as he saw it, the federal government coming in and overlaying a a second degree of bureaucracy that would uh, harass small business people, make it hard for them to comply. So he worked out some compromises that would let states like his take a first crack at the problem before the feds stepped in. But he he did not get what he might have wanted, which was a grander bargain with President Johnson, who simply rebuffed him and said, uh, no, we're going to stick with this strong bill that Kennedy proposed. And he was a Republican, and his stance wasn't atypical of Republicans. The party, I guess, was more moderate then. But if you had a continuum of those in favor and opposed to civil rights in the Senate, you'd have all the uh, Southerners, the Democratic, solid South Southerners on the opposed side. Was Everett in the middle? Was Everett really uh, more towards the very much in favor side? side. He was in the middle, and and his colleagues in the Republican caucus, largely from the Midwestern and Great Plains states, were in the middle. Illinois has a significant black population, so he had some electoral realities of his own to consider. Many Republican senators from the Great Plains states had essentially no black constituents and no obvious reason to be for civil rights. So what Dirksen managed to do by these compromises was to put the focus of the bill on the Jim Crow states of the South, make it more palatable for Northerners to support. Uh, So he was definitely the man in the middle, and that's how he positioned himself. Uh, His support for the civil rights bills really propelled him. He was already the most important Republican in Congress, but his support for those bills propelled him into a kind of a national leadership role. You know, covers of magazines, uh, he was hailed as a hero, that sort of thing. And and as you, you, you know... He later actually became a successful recording artist with a spoken word album of uh, sort of greatest hits of Americana, poems and songs of American history and so forth. They cannot stand. Not as long as there are gallant men. Now, just hearing that, you get a sense of the man 
Maybe you could think he's pompous, but I didn't. Okay, there was definitely some degree of grandiosity and pomposity. Yet I I hear a person reveling in things like the sound of the spoken word and the importance of this little piece of Americana that he's trying to convey. No, I think that's true. I think he he was sort of a Walt Whitman-esque uh, troubadour. I mean, or Carl Sandburg, you know, his fellow Illinoisan. He he thought there was majesty in the in the sort of uh, uh, foundational documents uh, and texts of America, and he he loved uh, letting them roll around in his in his mouth. And uh, he was quite uh, quite a character, really, in every way. I think, and in some ways, Washington and the Senate is much poorer for not having characters like him around anymore. Tell me about, speaking of characters and showmanship, tell me about the Ev and Charlie show. Well, it was a weekly news conference that he and the House Republican leader, Charlie Halleck of Indiana, had, and it was a kind of a Gallagher and Sheen, almost a, it devolved into almost a vaudeville routine. I believe it was Tom Wicker of the New York Times who dubbed it the Ev and Charlie show. Halleck was a very sort of W.C. Fields-like character from West Central Indiana, gravelly voice, very pugnacious, kind of uh, old-fashioned Paul. Both he and Dirksen uh, liked their liquor. You could see it in their faces. You could hear it in their voices. They became a big uh, surprise hit, actually, in the Washington, uh, you know, of their day for doing these televised news conferences, which were somewhat of a rarity at the time. Senator Dirksen, it looks like the curtain's coming down on your Evan Charlie show. Republican National Committee's cut off your funds, $40,000 a year. You said you're going to try to raise the money elsewhere and continue it. Congressman Bill Ayers of Ohio has said that if you want to speak for the party, he doesn't think the party wants you to speak for it. That is both you and, and Congressman Halleck. Can you tell us what's going to happen to the Evan Charlie show and how does it reflect on the leadership that you and Mr. Halleck um, exercise in the Congress today? Well, I think I can say to you that the Evan Charlie show as such will continue. I wish they'd call it the joint leadership show which it properly is, but we don't mind the appellation because I think if we were tagged with it in the belief that perhaps they could laugh this uh, performance off the air. But it has been going on. I think I can say with certainty that it will go on. And as for the financing, that should offer no difficulty. Later, Halleck was succeeded as minority leader by Jerry Ford of Michigan, and those uh, episodes weren't quite as colorful. Ford just wasn't the same kind of colorful character that Halleck was. Which tells you about the importance of showmanship and how much he knew it. And so did that actually inflect his policies? Because as I was going over his record, it seems to me that he would introduce bills about things like school prayer and protecting the flag, like really populist stuff that maybe could or couldn't get passed. Would it affect a lot of people's lives? It had a lot of symbolism. It seemed to me, tell me if this is a fair reading, that he would do that, it would maintain his popularity, but he really did risk his political capital on the important stuff. Yes, I think he was both a workhorse and a show horse. And another one of his long crusades was to make the, the marigold the national flower. And right. that he was, he was a loyal opponent of Senator Margaret Chase Smith of Maine, who wanted the rose. And actually, when, when Dirksen died, uh, Senator Smith placed a single marigold stem on his desk on the Senate floor in tribute. So he, he was... He knew that you could uh, had to have both bread and circuses to keep people uh, entertained and, and engaged in civic life. And one of the things he did do was <clears throat> he would send these weekly uh, films home to his district for airing on the local television stations and radio stations. 
And there are some remarkable tutorials that he would give, including during the debate over the Civil Rights Bill, in which he explained the technicalities of the legislation, the history behind it, the history of the Civil War amendments to the Constitution, and so forth, in a remarkably straightforward, um, non-condescending way that he put in, almost in a way that I think of Bill Clinton doing today, putting into plain language uh, high uh, legal concepts that he could make his listeners understand. I suppose the only time we never had a public debt was in the days when Andrew Jackson was the President of the United States. But other than that, I have no recollection that we have been without a debt, but never of such colossal proportions as the debt we have today. A couple things of note in this video. One is he has a couple of crutches leaning against the desk, which I don't think that he permanently needed them, but he wasn't of good health, and maybe you could talk about that during his life. Also, it's striking to me that, you know, today no one would ever, everyone would always understand the visual and no one would dare put crutches in the shot, let alone so prominently. The other fascinating thing was he was very upset that the debt ceiling might have to be raised. Let's talk about the debt. Back then, the debt was $332 billion, and today it's $18 trillion. So inflation has gone up 700%, and the debt has gone up 5,500%. So that's all notable. But uh, what else can we uh, glean from the talk we just heard? He, he knew the value of showmanship, but he was also unselfconscious. There's another one of those films in which he uh, sort of takes out his handkerchief in the middle of it and ostentatiously blows his nose. Yeah. Uh, he, he, he's not, uh, you know, he's not ashamed to let the viewers see the real F. He confessed once that he let his hair be unruly simply to attract more attention. He liked to brief reporters in the Senate press gallery sitting in the lotus position on top one of the tables there. He famously said that he was a man of unyielding principles, and his chief principle was flexibility. I think he he proved the point uh, during his long career. Back then, such a statement would make you be regarded as an exemplar of statesmanship, exactly what we want out of a senator. And now that's the sort of statement that would get you disqualified or at least imperil you in a primary. And I think it's notable that Everett Dirksen's statue on the state grounds of the Illinois Capitol has those marigolds, but has a donkey and an elephant, has a Democrat and a Republican symbol at his feet because he embodied bipartisanship, even though he was a partisan. And I think the key is that politics has changed more than Dirksen was a singular figure. Yes, I think that's true. I mean, even in his day, he took some heat for flip-flopping. The Chicago Tribune, at one point in his career, made a record of all the uh, inconsistent votes he'd taken over his uh, time in Congress and the Senate. But, but yes, I think the nature of politics has changed so radically, the nature of his own Republican Party has changed so significantly that um, it's not seen as a mark of statesmanship to compromise with the other side. It's seen as a mark of uh, surrender. And his brand of politics wouldn't be very popular in Washington today, and certainly not in the Republican Party. He would be a, a, a strange outlier among his own fold. Well, this has been a the first, perhaps only, installment of Get to Know a Past Senate Minority Leader. I want to thank Todd Purdom, who has written about Dirksen and so many other characters in his book, An Idea's Time Has Come, Two Presidents, Two Parties in the Battle for the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Thank you, Todd. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thanks very much. All right, you're driving, the check engine light comes on. You have two reactions. That's not good, and that could mean anything. The engine is like everything in the car, and you don't know what the hell's going on in the engine. So, how do you know what the hell? 
you know because of Automatic. Automatic is a device and a free mobile app, and it tells you in plain English what is going on in your car. It can also provide a log of your trips. It tells you where you parked. It will help you with gas prices, right? You drive smart, you can drive dumb. It makes a difference in gas prices. It's basically a way to connect your car to Google Docs, to Twitter, to Evernote. It has these extra features I just talked about. So for $99.95, no, I'm sorry, I misstated the price. For $80, because we're giving you 20% off as a GIST listener, you could get automatic and try it out. Why not try it out? There's a 45-day free trial, free return policy. The URL is automatic.com slash gist to qualify for the 20% offer. It ships in two business days for free. That's automatic.com slash gist. And now the spiel, a mighty heart. The least earned adverb by actors is bravely. She bravely played a character with a big nose. He bravely dared to learn a Welsh accent. They bravely intimated that something funny was going on within a brother-sister ice dance team. But Angelina Jolie bravely, and I mean that seriously now, bravely wrote about her decision to have her ovaries removed. Now, in 2013, she wrote about her decision to have a double mastectomy. Those decisions were linked to a family history of cancer and more specifically to testing for the BRCA1 gene. Here is Ginger Gardner, a gynecologic oncologist at Sloan Kettering, putting the risk in perspective. General population-based risk for a woman in this country is 1.7%. It's, it, that's the chance that in her lifetime, at some point, she'll develop ovarian cancer. For BRCA1 or, T, or 2 gene mutation carrier, that risk can be as high as 40 to 60%. So it's... Lifetime risk. That's huge. Angelina Jolie said she actually had an 87% risk of breast cancer and a 50% risk of ovarian cancer. So her decision was her decision and the right one for her. That's what she was arguing. But sharing that decision via the New York Times op-ed was certainly an act of bravery. I'd say it was a public good and it was a destigmatizing action. But there is a cost. Researchers from the Genetics of Medicine, that's a journal, report that after Jolie's 2013 op-ed about the double mastectomy, here's what they said. Well, three out of four Americans were aware of Angelina Jolie's double mastectomy. Fewer than 10% of respondents had the information necessary to accurately interpret Ms. Jolie's risk of developing cancer relative to a woman unaffected by the BRCA gene mutation, which is exactly why I played the clip I played for you. They went on to say that referrals for genetic counseling and testing for breast cancer in the UK, they looked at before, they looked at after, and it doubled. Requesting tests for BRCA1, those requests doubled. Now, you might say, well, that's a good thing. You're, it's always good to be vigilant. No, it's not. I mean, we're finding this out more and more, that more testing isn't always better, that outcomes, if left alone or watchful waiting with certain kinds of cancer, might be the better course. But we're told, for instance, with prostate screening, you got to get screened, you got to get screened. There's been a backtrack in the medical community to that. You know, false positives have a lot of consequences, and most women would be advised by their doctors about the tests if they showed a predisposition in family history. The media reporting on Jolie's decision 
which is nothing that Jolie could control, but the media reporting in general, last time and this time, has focused on her story, her, the word I used, her bravery, her openness, hasn't really focused on the extreme rarity. Maybe they use the word rare, but it hasn't underlined how rare this genetic mutation is. Vox quoted a guy named Tim Caulfield, who wrote a book, Is Gwyneth Paltrow Wrong About Everything? So this guy earns a special place in my heart. Tim Caulfield, who was one of the researchers behind these articles looking at the effect of Jolie's 2013 op-ed, and he cautioned that all the publicity could have unintended consequences. Tests, false positives, unneeded, very radical surgery. So, should we applaud Jolie's example? Should we bemoan the inevitable lack of context? Should we tell everyone out there how rare BRCA1 and 2 are and just hope for the best? Well, I would say yes, no. And of course, I think that even though these things aren't always handled with the utmost journalistic precision, in general, there is a march toward the good from stories like this. From women like Clara Hermet, who's a radio presenter in England. She's a YouTube personality. And she did this video about her double mastectomy. Both her mother and her sister died of breast cancer she took preventative surgery when she was 27 years old you know it's not an it's not an achievement as such it's just a choice it's a decision that that you make because you've been given this information and then you just get on with the rest of your life knowing that you're safer and and i know that my mum and sister would be proud of me and just super happy I always hear in health stories, science stories, very much in health stories, the phrase, but researchers worry. This could be misinterpreted. Health stories more so than other stories. Like this story on NPR last week about the benefits of breastfeeding. They felt they had to quote a doctor saying, But other researchers are more cautious. Valerie Flaherman of the University of California in San Francisco says, Lots of factors influence intelligence and success in life. Researchers do say you shouldn't get struck in the head by a two-by-four, but some worry that this might give the impression that if you avoid getting hit by a two-by-four, you'll win the Nobel Prize. How much excessive caution can there be? The evidence is clear. Breastfeed. Also, as an addendum to that, don't be horrible to women who aren't breastfeeding. How tough is this, right? Researchers caution. Look, I think Angelina Jolie made a tough personal and tough public choice. Applaud that. The public won't always interpret that correctly. Know that. But gradually, attitudes will shift toward the better. Hope for that. That's it for today's show. The GIST producer, Andrea Salenzi, was gutted to learn of the passing of former First Lady Ida McKinley. Managing producer Joel Meyer can scarcely imagine a world without Orville Wright, but takes comfort in the fact that Wilbur lives on. Oh no, Andy Bowers, executive producer, cautions. Wilbur is dead too. The skies are crying. The GIST is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash panoply speaking of itunes go there subscribe to the gist in itunes when you're there leave a review just looking at the reviews normally they're very good they don't have to be good the last one's not that good since i've been hearing how so many people complain about voices of female podcasters i want to say that your voice and cadence drives me crazy and no not in a good way that's good matching sexism with misandry or just not liking me that's all right I don't like you. Here's two stars. You know what? Thanks for not giving me one star. And then the next review, I got two bad reviews in a row, even though mostly they're good. I listen most days because I'm subscribed to the Slate feed. I think most of the topics are interesting. However, Mike makes me mad most days. He loves to hear himself talk, and he goes on and on about ridiculous things. Listen, 
I have to tell you something. People who talk a lot don't always like to hear themselves talk. I mean, actually, it's my job. But I would just to put more fine a point on this. We like to get acknowledgement for making interesting points. It's a slight variation, but maybe that will help your enjoyment of the podcast. Anyway, the gist is holding vigil until we can confirm that King Richard III, whose remains were found in a carport three years ago, is actually dead. We are cautioning our affiliates we cannot yet independently verify that the monarch, widely believed to have been killed in the Battle of Bosworth Field in 1485, was actually killed in that battle. So stand by as our humpback coverage rolls on. Thanks for listening. This is Josh Levine, host of Slate Sports Podcast, Hang Up and Listen. On this week's episode, we talk about the early retirement of San Francisco 49ers linebacker Chris Borland, what it means for the future of the NFL. What does it mean for the future of the NFL, Mike? It's good. You can subscribe to Hang Up and Listen for analysis just like that. iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts.